Good evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. On March 25th, George Floyd, who was handcuffed and being held down by two other officers, died when a Minnesota police officer forcefully placed his knee into Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. This act was committed in a public space in front of spectators who immediately and vocally protested the actions and called for a stop to this conduct. Videotapes of this killing circulated around the nation and resulted in days of protests by stunned and outraged individuals around the country. On June 6th, Floyd was eulogized in Rayford, North Carolina, and buried in Houston on June 9th. In the wake of these homegoing services, a recent survey conducted by the Democracy Fund plus UCLA Nationscape Project showed that people from all racial groups hold an increasingly unfavorable perception of police, with 54% of African Americans holding this view. Unfortunately, This is not the first time that people have protested a police killing of an African-American, as similar instances of misconduct have occurred all over the country. Each of these past cases have intensified the demands for progressive changes within this nation's police departments, and others have demanded the abolition of them. As such, the present outrage and protests represent a collective response to Floyd's unlawful death and other cases of police abuse which have occurred across the country. Already, a variety of plans to address the mistrust of the police are being discussed, including a decision to disband and replace the present police structure which was taken by the Minnesota City Council. Tonight, we are going to discuss police misconduct, its impact on African-American communities, and what is being done to address this issue. Joining us for this discussion are Coach Lavelle Moten, who is the head basketball coach at North Carolina Central University, and Professor Cami Chavis, professor and the, the director of the criminal justice program at Wake Forest University School of Law. So first of all, I want to thank both of you for joining us this evening. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Let me uh, start this discussion with uh, Coach uh, Moten, uh, because in a recent article in the News and Observer, you talked about racially tinged confrontations uh, that you are aware of and that you had with a police officer, I believe it, around, it was around uh, 2005. Mm-hmm. So for our audience, would you uh, start us off by describing that, uh, that incident? Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was 2005. I was um, 
in my early 30s, I believe. And um, the godfather of my kids is uh, Raymond Felton, who at the time was uh, the star point guard for the University of North Carolina. Um, and they had just won a national championship. Um, and so we're driving in my old neighborhood back in Raleigh. And um, I'm on the phone with my mom and all of a sudden, I'm, I have a truck and it's a Yukon Denali and the windows are kind of tinted at that time. And I see a cop, um, you know, in my rear view. And I tell my mom I'm going to call her back because I know I'm about to get poor. Um, and she said, no, nah, you stay on the phone with me. And I said, no, nah, I'll call you back because I know I'm about, about to get poor. And so in my old neighborhood, it's only turns that I could possibly make that I knew exactly where I was going. So if a car was going to follow me in these back roads, I knew automatically they were going to be following me. So I made those turns and true to itself, uh, he continued to follow me. So I just knew it was only, only a matter of time. A couple of minutes later, he puts on his siren lights for me to pull over and I pull over. And uh, in instantly I put my phone on um, speakerphone so my mom could hear everything. And I put the phone on my armrest. At the same time, Raymond is a passenger in my seat, um, in the passenger seat. And by the time I put the truck in park, you know, uh, the initial officer runs up to the car, the truck or whatever. He jerks my door open, then try to yank me out the car. And I never went because I had my seatbelt on. So I unclicked my seatbelt and he yanked me out the car. As he yanks me out the car, his buddy, his 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 partner has a gun to my head. Say, turn your black ass around, blah, blah, blah. Excuse my language, ladies. I'm just trying to be as... <laughs> honest as I possibly can. And so once I turn around, he makes me spread eagle on the on the um, car. So I'm asking him, like, what's going on? Because mind you, he hasn't done any of the routine. It's no driver's license registration, like none of that. It's just straight zero to 100 for him. So each time I turn around, his partner points the gun closer to my head. And now the initial officer is kicking my ankles for me to spread my feet. So I hear my mom on the phone crying and she's panicking and so on and so forth. Um, so I guess they call backup. So he's telling me, he said, I need to get in that car. I need to get in that car. And I said, you're not searching my truck. He's like, why? Because you, you got some dope in there, don't you? You got some dope in there. He continues to tell me I have dope in this car. He continues to tell me that me and Ray look like some dope boys. So um, he ended up cuffing me and he takes my head. He takes me to the back of the car. He takes me, he takes my head and he pushes me down on the curb. So mind you, it's, it's raining outside. I have an all white. We're going to an all white event. It's raining outside. He's making me sit on the curb. And so he's asking me to go in my uh, truck and get my driver's license. And I said, no, I'm not going in there to get my driver's license. I give you my driver's license number, but I'm not going in there for you to have a built-in excuse to shoot me. Like I, I've seen this movie way too many times. And, and mind you, when you grow up in the neighborhoods that I grew up in, you have a familiarity with the cops, right? Like, so this is the only reason I told this story. It was the first time a cop put the gun to my head. It was my first encounter with a cop. So probably, I, I guess he called for backup because soon after, the backup uh, policeman, he pulls up on the curve and I'm sitting on the curve and it's almost like he was trying to run me over. He stops like five feet away from me and police lights are the brightest lights ever. So he jumps out the car. He got his gun drawn uh, because his partners have their gun drawn. And uh, just so happened the backups um, partner gets out the car at the same time. and He looks at me and he's looking at me like with the familiarity. So they go over there and they huddle up and I don't know what they're talking about, but I hear my name, right? And so he comes back and says, man, what's your name? And I said, Lavelle Moe. And he's like, man, I told him that's, that's your name, whatever. So he goes back over and they huddle back up. And so my mom is still crying on the phone and I can hear her coming through the phone. And at this last minute, Ray rolls down his window 
and tells me, he's like, big bro, just calm down, just calm down. And they run up to his side because he scared them because all this time they never knew he was in the truck because my windows were tinted and they both ran up on my side of the truck initially anyway. So uh, they ran up on him, had the guns drawn. When they ran up on him, they recognized him because mind you, North Carolina had just won the national championship a month. This was in May, so a month before. And so, you know, everyone knew who Ray Felton was and so on and so forth. And so the officer finally says, look, this is <laughs> this is Lavelle Moten and Raymond Felton, man. Like we this ain't you know what we thought it was. So they go to the car, they huddle up once again, and then they come uncuff me. And, and the initial officer extends his hand and says, man, um, I don't want you thinking I'm a butthole. Um, I apologize. It's just we got a call where you fit the description of some dope boys and blah, 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 blah. And he extended his hand and I, I never shook his hand. And they left. And I, I kept hearing my mom crying. I thought I knew my mom. And we think we know our moms really well until you hear them crying for you too. Um, live, right? And it was just a different, it was a different, um, it was just a, like, it just made me emotional thinking about it, right? Because once I heard the George Floyd story and and I saw that video and him calling out for his mom, I had nightmares leading up to that week. Like it just, it just triggered like some PTSD in me. And as I sat on that curb, it was the first time I felt less than a man at the hands of another man. And that was the most humiliating thing for me because as a kid, I always sat around the older folks, my grandma and my grandfather, and listened to the stories that they told. And at that particular moment, I wasn't any different from the stories that my grandfather and my great uncles always shared when they were victims of the police. And it took me a while to, to gather myself and get back in that car. And once I got back in the car, I had a decision to make. Do I go public with it? Because mind you, it was 2005. We didn't have any... Um, I don't know if anyone had it on video or whatever, but um, it was a couple of reasons. Number one, I'm from a neighborhood where if I report that back to my neighborhood, um, their conflict resolution is a lot different, right? It, it's not going to end up pretty. And I, I know that in anyone that knows me and know the neighborhood in which I, I was from, um, they, they know that. So I had to kind of protect them because they they just squeeze first and ask questions later. That's how they react. That's that's their conflict resolution. So I wanted to protect those guys. And not only that, I didn't want to have any negative or dark cloud around Raymond um, because he was going to get drafted in the NBA draft the following week. And I didn't want any negative stories to affect his draft value, value in his stock because I knew how much his family needed him um, to make it for their um, fi financial benefit. And so I just kind of left it. Um, right then, I just, I never told anyone that story for 15 years. And after seeing the George Floyd story, it just made me, you know, um, uh, tell that story on Twitter. Um, because I just feel like, I just feel like there's a population and a demographic that honestly just don't get it. They just think it's a movie and they just think it's, it's almost like they've been insulated their entire life and none of this phases them. None of this, right. It's like a, it's like a whole nother world. It's like another planet. And so I shared my story and needless to say, the feedback has been, you know, incredible. And I've received so many emails and messages and heartfelt messages from people who, that didn't look like me that said, your story changed my life. It changed how I view um, um, people of color. It, it changed my sensitivity. It changed. Um, one lady just flat out told me, she said, look, before, um, 
I heard your story. I was a racist and I was a racist because my parents was a racist and they were racist because their parents was racist. But she said, um, you've helped me break the generational um, curse of racism in my country. So what can I do? So if I could just change one life, I know that was cliche. Um, just looking at it from a micro perspective, you know, I, I just thought that it was on my heart and on my spirit to share that story because I knew my platform would affect the lives of others. Yeah, and we appreciate uh reading about and hearing about uh, the experience that uh, that you had. Uh, Professor uh, Tavis, you, you do a lot of research uh, in this area. You've uh, written a number of articles uh, talking about this interaction between uh, African-Americans and, uh, and, and the police. Uh, how, how common is uh, this uh, experience that uh, Coach Lavelle, uh, Coach Moten, uh, has uh, shared with us uh, in uh, the research that you've done. So um, thank you for having me. And uh, really, I thank uh, Coach Moten for using um, his his platform to uh, talk about this. And sadly, um, you know, when we as um, African-Americans sit around our tables and at our homes, we all have uh, stories uh, like this, none, um, yeah, maybe none as uh, certainly like uh, George Floyd or Mike Ferguson, but these daily uh, interactions. And what I've seen is um, that uh, all of these interactions have really created, um, well, they've eroded any trust between uh, law enforcement agencies, if there was any to begin with, um, and they erode it and they prevent us uh, from being able um, to to trust uh, police officers who, and, and I know that we'll get into this and, and we'll talk about this, but it's really hard when you do have a crime that has occurred and when someone has been a victim of a, of a crime and you want to redress that crime and then you have to go to a witness who has witnessed the just uh, you know again um, the, the senseless uh, invasion of, of privacy and 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 humiliation and and terror that coach Moten described um, that we're, you're not going to want to uh, partner with uh, police officers uh, in that situation. So that is why um, and and that's what I've seen, I have, um, we, what we've seen is just an incredible uh, amount of uh, a lack of trust um, in communities uh, of color for, for these very reasons. You know, the um, incidents continue to uh, multiply, and they have had some uh, fatal consequence. Uh, George uh, Floyd is just uh, one uh, example of that. Uh, Professor uh, Chavis mentioned the uh, lack of trust. Uh, uh, Coach Moten, you, you, you were raised in uh, Southeast Raleigh. I'm very familiar with mm -hmm. uh, Southeast Raleigh. Can you just Take a couple minutes and talk about this level of uh, trust or mistrust uh, which exists between people in, uh, in, in that community that you were raised in and the, uh, and the police. Yeah, um, you know, I was, I was raised in Southeast Raleigh, as you mentioned, but I was actually born in, in, in Boston, Mass, in, in the lower end of the south end of the city called Roxbury in a housing project called Orchard Park. And so, um, you know, I, just moving from there and relocating from from Boston to 
uh, Southeast Raleigh at an early age. And I always tell people this, I tell all of my white friends this, and, and it helps them because I'm a, I'm huge in educating and teaching along the way and not just ranting and raving. Um, I tell them their introduction to the police and my introduction to the police were two different introductions. Theirs was that the police protect and serve them. Um, where I was from, you know, at 12 years old, um, I went to the the affluent part of town called Historic Oakwood because at that time um, I would have to, my projects was probably five, five blocks away from the governor's mansion, right? And it was really weird because there was a Historic Oakwood and then it just dropped to the, to the hood. And so I would always fundraise back then because my mother couldn't afford to sponsor my entire trip. So I would uh, sell magazine subscriptions at that time. So I would go to these neighborhoods and one day I went to a historic neighborhood and I'm coming back, um, you know, from from selling the magazine subscriptions and I'm counting my money and a cop is pulling up beside me as I'm going back home and, and he's kind of parallel to me. He's going about five miles an hour and he's driving as fast as I can walk. And the first thing he says is, hey, boy, where you get that money from? So, you know, it was 12 year old unpolished me. So I won't really trying to hear that. So I just looked at him like <laughs> I'm not your boy. Uh, none of that. So I continued to walk. And he said, boy, what I say? Well, you, where you get that money from? And I said, this is my money. And so he said, yeah. So he pulled in front of me. He got cut me off. He'd be lying. He cut me off and got out. Uh, the car. And again, he made me spread eagle on the hood. He went through my pockets. He said, again, he said, this is crack money, ain't it? Mind you, this is the inception of the crack era. So any young boy with a couple of dollar bills, you know, in public display is already assumed or perceived as his drug money that he's counting. And so he went through my pockets and he took my money and he took the money out my hand. And I went home. And this is what I mean about um, the mentality of where we're from. I went home and I was crying, but I wasn't crying because he violated me. I was crying because I was telling my mom, this dude has taken my money and I didn't know if I was going to be able to go on my AAU basketball trip. I didn't know where the money was going to come from. So w when you come from these neighborhoods and you become marginalized, um, it becomes a sense of normalcy because the truth is not only do we have to worry about that act of behavior from particular police, we also have to worry about surviving every single day. So we got bigger fish to fry. We just can't complain about that because every day we walk out of our homes, we got to make a life or death decision to get back in. Mind you, back then we were latchkey kids. So our parents was always, our mom was always, was never at home pretty. She was working two and three jobs. So we had nothing but time on our hands. And so some of the, the drug dealers in my neighborhood had the cops on their payroll, <laughs> right? Like, so, and this was a known fact. So, I, I never looked at anyone as pristine, you know, as, you know, to fit their job description. I looked at them and I had to look at the world at a, at a very young age for what it is. And that was real. It was always the real versus the ideal. And I always looked at it from a real perspective. And so, you know, that's not to take a broad brush and, and, and paint everyone as corrupt or whatever it may be. But it's just my we all are some total of our life experiences. And it's just what I'm choosing to share because now all of a sudden you, you, you ascend to this level of success that people want to say you have. And all of a sudden you're no longer in touch or they don't want you to be in touch with your, your initial upbringing. And the reality is I lived in poverty far, far longer than I've ever been in this position. So all of my emotions, all of my triggers, all of my um, personality pretty much come from that place. And 
I just feel like I need to have a voice and lend a voice and a helping hand to those people who may not um, have one at that particular time. Okay, Coach, uh, we're going to have to take a break uh, right now. Uh, This is the uh, Legal Eagles Review, and we are talking about uh, police misconduct in the African-American community. Our guest, uh, Coach uh, Lavelle Moten, who's the head basketball coach at North Carolina Central University, and Professor Cammie Chavis, who's a uh, professor and the director of the criminal justice program at Wake Forest University School of Law. We're going to take a break. want you to uh, stay with us, and we'll be right back. I'm Nastasia Harris, a third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Virtual Justice Spotlight. No matter where you are and what you are doing, being stopped by the police can be a stressful and anxiety-ridden experience. Whether a police officer stops you on the street or begins to pull you over, what you do and say can have significant effects on any legal proceedings that might follow. You cannot assume that officers will behave in a way that protects your safety or that will respect your rights even after you assert them. Therefore, your choices are critical. If you are ever stopped by the police, remain calm, don't run, resist, or obstruct the officers. Keep your hands where the police can see them. You have the right to remain silent. You do not have to answer any questions about where you are going, where you are traveling from, what you are doing, or where you live. You do not have to consent to a search of yourself or your belongings, but police may pat down your clothing if they suspect a weapon. If you are arrested by police, you have the right to an attorney if you cannot afford one. As always, if you wish to exercise any right, say so out loud. Silence does not automatically trigger legal rights and privileges. If you believe your rights have been violated, write down everything you remember, including officers' badges and patrol car numbers and any other details. File a written complaint with the agency's Internal Affairs Division or Civilian Complaint Board. In the words of Justice Thurgood Marshall, where you see wrong or inequality or injustice, speak out because this is your country. This is your democracy. Make it, protect it, pass it on. More information is at aclu.org. Virtual justice at the NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and the legal clinical program. I'm Nastasha Harris. Thanks for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review, where we are talking with uh, Coach Lavelle Moten, who's the head basketball coach at North Carolina Central uh, University, and Professor Cammie Chavis, who is uh, a professor and the uh, director of the criminal justice program at uh, Wake Forest University uh, School of Law. Uh, This uh, topic is one of uh, significant interest in our uh, community. So let me just start back by asking uh, Professor uh, Chavis, uh, what is the, uh, the underlying cause for this, uh, this, this tension this, uh, uh, that exists between uh, the uh, police, uh, and typically it is all over the country, uh, and uh, the African-American community? Yeah, you know, uh, it's interesting because um, at, at 
where I teach, I teach um, a class on police and prosecutorial um, accountability. And one of the first things we start with, we have to remember, is that our police departments, as we know them, are really modern day uh, formulations of, 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 I mean, there are precursors to police departments. And the first um, thing when we think about in history, we go back to um, uh, slave patrols, right? It used to be that people would uh, band, like community members would band together and protect their uh, their property and their their homes um, in that way. And some of that early property was human beings, right? And so uh, we go back to slave patrols. Then we move forward in history, and we think about um, the uh, after. Um, uh, or during Reconstruction and, and through even the 1950s, where you had uh, black folks terrorized um, by the, the the Ku Klux Klan and and, and other members, and you had um, lynchings. You know, law enforcement officers, if they were not themselves active participants, uh, were at least complicit in knowing uh, who the perpetrators of these crimes uh, against black people were, and then not um, uh, yeah, not bringing them to justice. And then we move to the civil rights movement where you have, again, you have black people um, disobeying what they thought were unjust laws. Uh, and again, you have uh, police forces coming in to, um, to uh, enforce the unjust laws. Uh, so it is a, a very, it is a, a long history. Um, and I, you know, I don't want to suggest that we haven't made uh, some improvements or that some jurisdictions haven't made uh, improvements. But um, the problem is that this has been a uh, an issue uh, since the uh, really since the inception of our country and modern day police departments some of them have not really evolved they're not as diverse uh, as they need to be and uh, and just another aspect that I would mention is that when we think about um, modern day police departments um, and or policing in general there's three kind of three characteristics of, of our American policing culture. And one of those is the belief. If you talk to a lot of police officers and there's studies on this, um, they believe that unfortunately that violence is a part of their job, is a necessary part of their job. Uh, so the belief that violence is, is necessary to uh, effectuate uh, an arrest. Um, the other part is uh, group loyalty. You know, uh, being a police officer is uh, can be, incredibly uh, dangerous. And so you want uh, to make sure that you have a backup when it is necessary. Um, and if you have called out some behavior of one of your officers, you may be retaliated against and you may not have um, that uh, backup when it's necessary. So that's what we call the, the, the code of, of silence uh, and that group loyalty uh, there. And then finally, the other third troubling characteristic is uh, the sense that 
um, uh, the lack of discipline and supervision so that when an officer does something uh, wrong and, and Coach Moten, what Coach Moten described for uh, us before the break, um, set two different incidents where officers had no reason um, to, to, to search him uh, in that way, um, you know, clearly uh, meant to be an act of intimidation. When you see a violation like that, a fellow officer um, uh, or a, a supervisor uh, would need to come in and say, no, that's not, according to policy, that's not going by the book. That's not how we do it. And that doesn't happen. And they don't get uh, disciplined. They, they don't get retrained or removed. So when you take all three of those together, the violence, the group loyalty, and uh, the lack of supervision and discipline, it really creates this toxic culture um, that we have today. And that, by the way, I will add that some police departments uh, have certainly been uh, successful in recognizing uh, each of those and in trying to uh, to do better and um, and and make um, and make changes. You know, you, you, you know you, Professor. Professor Chavis, um, that that description, both of the kind of precursor to modern day policing and the challenges that currently exist, and both you and Coach Moten have talked about the daily interactions and this familiarity that you know um, those in certain communities have, particularly the African American community. How do we go about building this trust? And so, even if you have pockets of of uh, police officers and organizations that are mindful of this and are trying to make changes, um, that doesn't impact the vast majority of African-Americans who do not have, for good reasons, trust of, uh, of police departments and, and those in law enforcement generally. Well, I'm going to, you know, you, it, it's interesting because, you know, if we've asked this question and again, we've been asking this question for a long time and I would just start kind of in the middle with, um, you know, what happened in Watts in 1965 and the Los Angeles rebellion in 1992. And then um, when we think about uh, the uh, more recent uh, protests of, with, you know, involving uh, Mike Brown and Freddie Gray. And now here we are in the midst uh, yet again with, um, uh, you know, the protests surrounding uh, Mr. Floyd's death, which also, I think, you know, taken in context um, with Brianna Taylor and what also happened to Ahmaud Arbery. So um, we've been asking um, this, uh, this question, and I believe that uh, we really have to rethink uh, the way in which we, we have to have a paradigmatic shift in uh, what we believe uh, policing means. And I think that there are a number of encounters uh, between citizens and police that are unnecessary. Um, the, the, the fact that, um, of, you know, somebody has run a stop sign or seatbelt violation, um, why do we need to uh, criminalize those types of, of, of violations? Um, and then when we think about um, Eric Garner, uh, lost his life, you know, for selling uh, loose, allegedly selling loose cigarettes or um, this um, alleged uh, counterfeit bill uh, at issue uh, with uh, Mr. Floyd's uh, death. For these interactions to end in the death of a human being um, is uh, really the, the, the benefits of that certainly outweigh the costs. And when you put officers in these situations, you are endangering their lives as well. So I think that we need to um, really, really 
we think about what it is we're asking uh, police officers to do and when we are asking them to intervene. And um, they're just um, a, a lot of different uh, points within our criminal justice system where, um, you know, we, we haven't been able to train away some of the, the bias that the biases that we're seeing. And so I think that removing the um, ability of, of for the for the violence uh, is is a good starting place. You know, you, you talked about uh, policing doing the uh, uh, Jim uh, Jim Crow segregation uh, era, and uh, but today we're at a different point. Uh, we have uh, uh, African American uh, police officers. We have. African-American uh, supervisors. We have African-American uh, chief of police. In fact, the uh, chief of police in uh, Minneapolis was an African-American. The chief of police in Raleigh is an African-American. The chief of police in Durham is an African-American. Yet these incidents uh, continue. Uh, continue. Why, why hasn't the presence of color within these uh, police departments had an impact on the conduct of the uh, officers that are supposed to uh, serve and protect. And I, I just present that to both of you uh, since uh, you are uh, involved uh, in it and uh, to get your, your reaction to that. Well, one, one thing that I would say is that um, it, is, it, it is very important that we have diversity uh, diverse opinions, diverse people, wherever we are. I mean, that's whether you are, we're talking about uh, prosecutor's office, uh, lawyers, uh, where, wherever we are, we need diversity. So we certainly need it within uh, law enforcement agencies. There's something perverse about some of these agencies. You, you, I look at the statistics and a community might be 90, um, might be 95% uh, uh, black, but all of the officers uh, are white, and so there's something um, about that, that 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 makes the police force seem more like an occupying uh, force, you know, rather than uh, guardians. And that's language I'm, I'm using from uh, friends of mine who've written um, in the in these areas. But um, it, we, it, it is a question to me of of police culture. So you can certainly have um, an African-American chief, mayor, uh, DA, and we've, we've seen this too, um, but to believe that that one person or even a series of people would be able to undo um, hundreds of, of years of, of systemic racism um, is, is not reasonable. And I do believe that, um, that it makes a difference. It makes a difference. I think it made probably made a difference in Minneapolis with the fact that these officers were fired uh, so quickly. Um, and, you know, the fact that there was um, an African-American chief who himself, I think, had um, experienced um, uh, racism in his in his career. So, you know, I, I think that it's important um, that they're there and they're important uh, leaders, but it really is uh, the culture of policing. Those those uh, characteristics that I mentioned earlier, the loyalty, supervision, um, and, uh, and, and, and violence um, that we would really need to address and, and attack um, at, at the root. Yeah, um, I agree 100% with everything 
um, she said, um, I think you're completely spot on. Um, I, however, I do think it's extremely important to not assume that just because people are the same color and nationality, that there's a general understanding. Um, I'm still amazed at, um, you know, it's, it's, it's more black people that's interested in me telling my story of my upbringing because they have an unfamiliarity, you know, with, with how I was brought up, just like someone who don't look like me. Um, and so I think, as I mentioned that, because I think when you're going into these communities um, where people already um, have minor instances where they do not trust the police. I think it's extremely important to have someone in there who can police a, a group of people or a community that understands why they act that way, why they think that way, and why there's a mistrust so you can kind of bridge the gap. And conversely, it's important that they know is someone who can understand them if we're ever going to bridge that gap. I don't care who it is. It can be white, black, Puerto Rican, like whoever. If they go in there, if you go in that community and they feel like there's a, a distrust and they don't, they don't trust your next move, then this is still going to be the same story. It's just going to be a black cop, you know, on, on the on the heels of this event or whatever. So I just think it's super, super important to not assume that just because they're black, they understand um, the plight of that community. Because, and I'm only speaking from the communities in which I live, um, because I know we there was some heat given to black officers, just like there was some heat given to some, some, some white officers, because if they expect you to understand and you show them that they don't understand, then you lose all their respect. And once you lose respect for someone, you never re-respect them, right? Once you lose respect, that's gone. I've never seen anyone re-respect someone, right? And so, and, and honestly, when they see a black face or someone that looks like them, they expect them to understand initially in the moment you know, their margin of error is actually there because the moment you show them that, look, I'm not understanding or I'm not willing to understand and I'm going to treat you the same way, um, you know, my counterparts have treated you, then the distrust is gone from day one. And, and I, I want to just add a, like a little twist on this too, because we talked um, earlier about, or I, I was speaking about um you know, officers like fail the code of silence and things like that. But there are a number of, this is just how uh, the po police culture works sometimes. There are a number of African-American law enforcement um, uh, folks who themselves have experienced um, racism within the uh, police department, or they have seen bias, they have seen someone do something wrong, and then they are retaliated against for, um, for uncovering that behavior. And, and so that is uh, something that, that we need to think about. And another thing is that, you know, I, I listened to the prosecutor in, um, in Minneapolis and Hennepin County uh, last week when he was uh, announcing the charges. And he said, you know, my office has successfully prosecuted uh, police officers um, who've done this before. And I, I had to go back and look. I'm like, what is, what is he talking about? Because I'm thinking about Jamar Clark and uh, Philando Castile and other folks in that area. And he was talking about uh, the successful prosecution of Mohammed Noor, uh, a black officer, a, a Somali-American officer, 
who shot um, a, a, a woman, a, a white woman. And so the fact that that's something we know in the criminal law um, as a phenomenon as well is that it sometimes it depends on the race of your victim. You, yes, there is justice sometimes depending on who the victim is. And the fact that many victims of police violence are black men tells us a lot about um, stereotypes in our society and which is why we are hearing now from everyone uh, that black lives matter. All right, you're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking about policing, particularly in the African-American community and the untold violence that is perpetrated upon people within our community. Our guests are Coach Lavelle Moten, who is the head men's basketball coach at North Carolina Central University, and Professor Cami Chavis, professor of law at Wake Forest University and also the director of the criminal justice program there. We're going to have to take a quick break, but we will be right back. We hope you stay with us. Since 2010, the North Carolina Central University School of Law has been at the forefront of virtual legal education with the launch of its Virtual Justice Project. The Virtual Justice Project is an innovation in legal education and technology. NCCU School of Law pioneered this approach to address the underrepresentation of African-American lawyers and a lack of access to justice for low-income and marginalized communities. Virtual pre-law courses prepare students, wherever they are, for the rigor of law school. The Know Your Rights series offers legal information sessions that empower participants to understand the law and to promote self-advocacy. Both the pre-law courses and the legal information sessions are made possible through telepresence and high-definition video conferencing. Course listings and contact information, along with more detail about the Virtual Justice Project, are on the NCCU Law website at law.nccu.edu. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Coach Lavelle Moten, who is the head men's basketball coach at North Carolina Central University, and Professor Cami Chavis, who is professor and director of the criminal justice program at Wake Forest University School of Law. Right before the break, Professor Chavis, you were talking about how even within the police department, so African-American law enforcement officers may be challenged with discrimination within that space, and that might have an impact on how it is that they engage in, in policing. And so when we talk about law enforcement, a lot of it is local, a lot of it is state. Are there any moves for the federal government to get involved, either in terms of federal legislation uh, that might help provide guidance in terms of how law enforcement is accomplished throughout the nation as opposed to having kind of piecemeal rules and regulations? Right. So um, as you mentioned, I mean, there are um, almost 19,000 local law enforcement 
agencies in the United States. So, and they each operate with their own set of, of guidelines and, and rules. So I think that we would benefit from uh, some national standards. And um, that's just what the, um, the Legislation uh, Justice in Policing Act um, that's been uh, introduced uh, Congresswoman Karen Bass, uh, and it's uh, also co-sponsored by um, Cory Booker and uh, uh, Kamala Harris, Senators um, Harris and Booker as well. Um, the uh, This uh, federal legislation um, is incredibly important. Um, it is actually a compilation of other uh, laws uh, that have uh, that, that folks have been trying to enact for, for many years. Um, and I think it has a number of promising uh, pieces, um, but uh, including um, uh, banning uh, racial profiling, um, there's a provision for federal officers to wear body cameras and it um, includes some important uh, privacy uh, provisions uh, related to that. Um, but there, it also, um, it, it looks at uh, qualified immunity. It looks at um, the federal uh, standard, um, you know, striking um, some language in uh, one particular statute, uh, Statute 242, that um, uh, that uh, strikes uh, a a um, there's a, a, a willful uh, standard um, and it strikes that. So it makes it easier to, uh, to be able to uh, prosecute, uh, I'm, not, I'm sorry, not prosecute, but to sue uh, officers for 1983 violations. It broadens the uh, pattern or practice uh, authority that the federal government already has by giving the uh, special litiga litigation section of uh, DOJ subpoena authority, meaning they can come in and investigate a police department and they can subpoena uh, documents. It has a lot of funding um, that, and I think one of the most important things you mentioned for local um, uh, uh, state and local governments is that this new federal bill has uh, grant money uh, so that um, states can come up with uh, innovative uh, policing programs um, that would be uh, helpful in eradicating and uh, reaching some of the negative aspects of, of the police culture that uh, I talked about. So, and there's a lot, there's a lot in there about uh, demilitarization. So it is chock full uh, of good things. Um, it is not an anti police bill. Um, it is, I think, a bill that um, most uh, police chiefs we've been talking about, um, they want to have good officers, they want to have good relationships with the communities that they serve, and there's uh, enough in here uh, to uh, to make that happen. Um, and finally, uh, uh, and, uh, importantly, um, it um, uh, bans uh, certain um, uh, behavior. It's incentivizing um, groups to uh, or, or agencies to ban uh, chokeholds. And of course, a chokehold in Minneapolis is the same as a chokehold in Raleigh uh, or uh, or New York. Um, and it would also ban <clears throat> uh, no-knock warrants in drug cases. The reason that Breonna Taylor is not with us today is because of a, a no-knock uh, warrant um, in a drug case. So, um, these are just some of the things um, that that bill does, but it will be up to uh, state and local governments, I think, to uh, come up with uh, creative solutions to finally transform policing. Well, you know, the uh, and, and this legislative, these legislative proposals are good efforts uh, being made at the uh, local and uh, state level now to uh, talk about 
these issues. But I want to just ask uh, uh, Coach Moten, uh, you, you have a son. You are actively involved in uh, community uh, activities and outreach in, uh, in, in Raleigh and other parts of, uh, of the area. Uh, you are the uh, coach of uh, men's basketball, uh, and you have a lot of uh, influence with young people, young men in, uh, in particular. What do you tell them about confrontations or connections with, uh, with law enforcement to help them to uh, get past uh, the issues and uh, conflicts that might uh, arise from those uh, interactions? And it's, uh, that's a great question. There's so much that I tell them um, because it's so much uh, to be told. I think the number one thing is um, my job is, it's not only my moral obligation, but a social responsibility um, to my community. And, and for that, I have to be honest. I have to be completely honest um, with what to expect out there. Because again, some of, some of the people that look like us aren't quite familiar with what's to be expected if they get pulled by a cop at the wrong place at the wrong time. And so um, I was teaching my my goddaughter how to drive. She just turned 16, so I was helping her. And I didn't only teach her how to change lanes and how to uh, two-point turn and three-point turn in parallel park. I taught her how to act in case the cops pull you over. Right, and I told her, number one, make sure you memorize your driver's license number. Right, because, and, and secondly, before you reach for anything, any glove compartment, any armrest, ask the policeman and, and can you reach and, and ask him two times to make sure that he understands what you're saying. And this is just to prepare and not only prepare, but protect yourself from any potential uh, bodily harm. Um, so that's one of the first things that I do is I, I tell them that. Secondly, with my basketball team, you know, they're young men and they're 18 to 22 years old and we've all lived that life and we've all lived the college experience. But the reality is I don't, I'm not concerning myself with the two hours that they ha have with me on the basketball floor. I'm also concerned myself with the 22 hours off the basketball floor because the reality is they're not a North Carolina Central basketball player when they step out there. They're a black man, a young black man. And so we find two some things that we role play and, and you know, oftentimes they're going to, not be alone so it'll probably be two or three of them so we role play okay Let, we pull up four chairs okay what happens if the cops pull y'all in this in this situation at 12 o'clock at night and you're coming from a nightclub or whatever and you're 100 percent not guilty how do you respond because it's still important that you respond the correct way so we go through um our role play in in in, in case uh those situations arise and i just think the, the one thing that I could do better than anyone is kind of bridge the gap between the policeman and the community. Um, every single year, um, and we have so many events that we do under my Vail Cares Foundation, I invite the local police officers out there so they can see, okay, this is who these people are. They're people just like you. They have a heart just like you. They love, they bleed, they have emotions just like you and come in, um, fellowship with them, understand who they are. And so now if you have any potential run-ins down the road, maybe that can change your thought process. So every um, 
organized event that I have, I try to include the local policemen. And it works the other way too, so the community can can understand that this guy is not as bad as you may perceive him to be as well. So that's what I've tried to do in the past, just to kind of blend the harmony and, and bridge a gap and, and have a direct connection um, between policeman and community um, together. You know, Coach Moten, um, something else that you had said, which relates to what you were just talking about in terms of bridging the gap, um, when you were describing the um, incident in 2005, um, first, I'm, I'm a mother of a 26-year-old son and a 19-year-old son, and the thought of uh, listening on the phone to them being stopped by law enforcement. And I just can't imagine. Um, and I think every um, mother of a black child, particularly a black male child, um, the type of you know, kind of trauma that you go through, just imagining your child being in that situation is, is real. Um, you, said that you, you know, educate not just your, um, the students and the players under your charge, but you also feel it's your obligation to educate other people. Uh, so, so white people. Mm-hmm. And how does, I just, could you share how you're able to stay in that space? Because it can be exhausting. Okay. And every time you have to share your experiences, it's, it's re-traumatizing. And so can yeah. you just share how it is that you're able to navigate an incredibly difficult mental mm-hmm. space that um, so many people just cannot, no matter how many times you explain it, they can't fully appreciate and understand where you're coming from. Yeah, it's been it's been really difficult. And I'll be I'll be lying if I said I have been able to completely grasp that. Um, I'm I'm I've had severe anxiety since I was ever since I can remember. But it was only recent that I've been diagnosed as it and, and with it. And so I've received mental health therapy. And it's been the best thing that ever happened to me because I've bottled up all my emotions and a million of these types of stories and I just thought lay this is life you got to get over it and and it's it's bogged me down so I felt the need to use that platform to share my experience to educate a different population and so a lot of people don't know this but I was a a public school educator for six years so I value education and so I just I just believe the root of all this is a miseducation and I don't want to be too long-winded but I'll say this if you look up uh, in high school, probably 10th, 11th grade, whenever you took U.S. history, um, a 300-page U.S. history book, you only learned about five black people, right? So, you know, those, and they never really told you the truth about them. So those, there was Harriet Tubman, Jackie Robinson, Martin Luther King, Hank Aaron, and Rosa Parks. And they didn't even tell you the truth about Rosa Parks. They told you nothing about her criminal defense background. They just said she was a seamstress that was tied, right? And so... I think that gives black kids an inferiority complex, right? Because you're looking saying, wow, only five people that look like me have major contributions to America and it's overall development. And now across from them is a white child that's sitting and it gives them a superiority complex that they probably don't necessarily deserve because they're being miseducated as well. And so when they walk out of those classrooms, there's a sense of entitlement from another race 
that feel like they're there and you're here. And rightfully so, it's human nature. That was a score and the score was 295 to five. <laughs> I feel like you're not on my level. And just going back to the root of my education, I remember learning about um, the Holocaust. And one of the projects that our teacher made us do was write a letter um, to Anne Frank and any, any other uh, Jews that were probably affected from that incident. And what that did, it was a beautiful experiment. What that did, it, it humanized me. And it made me have compassion for someone that didn't look like me, right? And so I thought it was an incredible event, but I was like, hey, why haven't anybody written a letter to a slave, right? To understand that. And so I think at the end of the day, what we're missing is a compassion, a empathy, and a sympathy. And that's what's frustrating black people so much at this particular time. It's like, you're seeing this, but you can't feel what I feel. And they can't feel what you feel because they were never taught to feel like you feel. They'll feel it for dogs because they was taught that with some dogs. They feel it for animals because they were taught that with some animals. But nowhere in our history of public school education was the truth really told in terms of slavery. And that's the other thing, if you ask a, white child or black child about the history of black people, they'll start with slavery, right? So like, nah, this, this was way before 1619, man. We were kings and queens long before we ever came in here. The richest man that ever walked the face of the earth was a black man, Monsu Monsu, but they don't know those things. So I just feel like it's super important to educate our people the same way. And when people, when white people email me saying, look, you changed my life, it is overwhelming, it is frustrating, but I just feel the need in my spirit to educate them because maybe they can spark a change in someone else that don't look like them because it's not black people's responsibility to fix a problem that, of racism that we never created. So I tell them, listen, here's how you can help, all right? Here's how you can help. First of all, humble yourself and understand you really don't know us as well as you think you know us. Second of all, if in literary terms, go back and read From Slavery to Freedom from John Ho Franklin. Go back and read Roots. Go back and read the autobiography of Malcolm X. Those are three literary um, extravaganzas that can help you and understand how we deal. Now, in terms of documentaries with the Netflix and things, go back and look at the 13th Amendment. Go look back, go look at I Am Not a Negro by James Baldwin, right? Go look at some, go look at Roots, right? And so now you can fully understand and, and develop an education that you missed 35, 40 years ago that has desensitized you to the Black experience. Well, all right. That is a great note for us to end on. Um, unfortunately, we're out of time. We could talk with both of you uh, endlessly. Thank you so much for being our guest. Coach Lavelle Moten, who is the head men's basketball coach at North Carolina Central University, and Professor Cami Chavis, who is the professor and director of the criminal justice program at Wake Forest University School of Law. And as always, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show uh, and that you've learned something. We sure we are sure that you have. Um, if you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleagoreview at nccu.edu. And if you miss any of our shows, you can find them on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, and healthy.